Wow, thank you for your little mandolin song there, and I think that is a mandolin. I'm going to need a Kleenex before I get going here. Oh, I got some right here. Here we go. Thank you. Uh, last time we were together was not last week, but the time before that. Uh, we looked, we were still in John chapter 2, and we'll be there probably a, another week after today. And uh, <clears throat> I have brought you through that, that portion of that chapter, looking at different aspects of, of what all was going on there. We know that there's a miracle of the, uh, you know, turning the water to wine, and there was so much to that that we wanted to really look at and focus on. And you know, it's all built around that concept of the third day. And I showed you early in our chapter 2 study <coughs> how that that third day is a picture of the, <coughs> of the church age, 2,000 years of church history, and then Christ returning on the third day based on one day with the Lord is 1,000 years. And we went through all of those different systems. <coughs> and I showed you how that this story of a wedding here is a picture of the coming wedding of Christ and His bride, the church, and the wedding supper that follows. And, I, uh, and, and what I did was, which is what I always try to do, is I, I, to help you with your Bible, I put in the order for you nine future events, starting with the rapture and then walking you right up to when actually eternity begins. And I put them in the right order in a consistency for you and nine future events that's going to come to planet Earth and uh, in, the next, in the near future. And all of them are related to uh, the third day, or also called the day of the Lord. And we wanted to put them in a proper context and order, so uh, you see how that they all tie together. I get asked many, many times, you know, about all of these different events. People know about the events, but most people don't know the order of those events. So I figured while I was right there, we were talking about this, I wanted to put it in order. I don't ever want to just give you half of the information that you, you need to, to make your Bible work for you. And this is all built around the, uh, in the story of the miracle of him turning the water to wine. And, you know, we're going to see this. Most of you already know this. But in Christ's earthly ministry, you'll find that he does many, many miracles. Now, there's a reason for that. Most people don't understand the reason for that, but uh, it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 4, where God, if you remember, told Moses to put his hand in his bosom, and then he pulled it out, and it was leprous. And then he said, put it back in, and then when he pulled it out, it was whole again. And he told him right there in that chapter that God was going to use miracles, healings, signs, and wonders uh, to establish that the nation of Israel would know that that was truly of God because nobody can counterfeit that. You just can't. And then so moving forward here, when Christ shows up at the first coming of Christ, just so you understand this, you're going to find in the book of Matthew, which we've laid out many, many times, how that each chapter basically walks you through him being um, defined as the king of the Jews. And in chapter 8 and 9, this is where he <coughs> begins his, his miracle ministry. <coughs> and he does that to show the nation of Israel that his credentials 
as the king of the Jews is legitimate based on what God told Israel back there in, uh, with Moses in Exodus chapter 4. So I want you to know that these miracles have a real important aspect to the nation of Israel. And of course, we know, I might as well just get this out of the way, we know that there are no miracles like that today. There is no healing uh, in the sense of the apostolic healing. God certainly heals, but not in the sense where I can lay hands on you and make you better. Believe me, if I'd have done that, I'd have preached last week. But that doesn't work. And there's no raising of people from the dead. You know, we talked about Thursday night, uh, the question about the difference between an apostle and a disciple, and I showed you that there are no apostles today. And it was the apostles that were given that power uh, to be able to do that. And, of course, uh, those things don't happen anymore. And the reason for it is that you're told in the Bible that they're sign gifts, and Israel was told to look for a sign. So, you know, that's why he does the miracles, and you, and you need to know that. And in each one, you know, uh, we will, uh, each one of them is a picture of something that deals with Israel's condition spiritually. And as we go through John, we will lay them out. We're going to come into them all through John, and we're going to lay them out, and I'll give you the complete understanding and breakdown of it so you'll be able to get that into your Bible. But in John chapter 2, where we're at right now and have been for the last couple of weeks, this is where we find our first one. Then I showed you the practical side of this miracle and how that it was, a, it was God giving uh, the, uh, the people at that point a, a little taste of the supernatural wine that was going to be at this wedding in the future. And uh, I, I told you in a practical way, that's what God does with you and me. God will give us a little taste of heaven, the miracles in our lives that he will do, the things that he will do in a spiritual way. There, there's no miracles like in the sense of if your car's burning oil, lay your hands on the hood and it'll quit burning oil. But God will use you and me if we will allow him in a supernatural way and continue to do miracles in your life. One of the greatest miracles is the miracle of the new birth. God's saving us. And then in your life and your family and things, God will come down and invest in you and do supernatural things, not only for you, but with you. And many times in dealing with other people. And, uh, you know, the supernatural wine that he gave them is a picture of the supernatural things he'll do in our lives. You know, we, you remember when Israel, this is back in Exodus chapter 16, Bible tells us that they're going through the wilderness of sin. And that is a great picture of you and me going through life today, because brother, we live in a wilderness of sin. And there was nothing that sustained them. And this is the great picture. There was nothing in that wilderness of sin that sustained them. There was no water. There was no food. It was a desert, a dry, arid desert where the temperature is 120 in the day and goes down to 30 degrees at night. It was, it was just the most hostile environment that somebody could be in. And there was nothing there that they could, and yet God sent them into that wilderness to get to the promised land. So what does God do? God comes down and he gets water out of a rock type of Christ. What does he do? He brings the manna supernaturally from heaven and feeds them. 
I, I remember one time I figured it out, but I don't remember the exact number, uh, but he fed them for 40 years and we got probably a million plus people. I figured up how many times if they just, everybody just ate a pound of a day. It was like, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of tons of manna he had to rain down on them. All supernatural. And of course, we know that that manna uh, is a picture of the Word of God, the supernatural food that God gave you and me and the water out of the rock to sustain you and me in our journey through the wilderness of sin. See how it all works? And that manna from heaven is called angel food. So it was light and fluffy. So they've got, you go to the store someplace, you can buy an angel food cake, light and fluffy. But then on the other side of that, you can have a devil's food cake which, don't hold this against me, is my favorite. <laughs> and it's a thing where everything breaks down in this world around the two forces that are moving through this world, God and the devil. And, uh, you know, and then I use some examples out of Hebrews chapter 11, 15 men and women or so that are great examples and how they, they, they got through the tremendous trials and afflictions uh, as they serve God. And, and what a picture. And they all got through the same way you and I will get through, and that is because God did supernatural things in their lives. We had Bible Institute last Saturday, and we walked, we're in Hebrews chapter 11, and I, I took the first four men in the book of Hebrews. That's all the farther we really got. And I showed them what a beautiful, I gave them four keys to our Christian faith that we have to have these to really understand what faith is. And that's what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. It's about faith. And I, I, I told them the first guy was Abel. And the Bible says that Abel gave a more excellent sacrifice than Cain did. And the first thing I told them is the fact that, you know what? Real faith in your life and my life is going to produce you and I giving a more excellent sacrifice for God than the average person. Then we talked about Enoch, and I told them that Enoch, Bible says that Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. And I told them, a real life of faith is not to be afraid to walk with God in a world where nobody else does. Then the third guy was Noah, and what a great example he is, and I told them that, you know what, Noah, don't be afraid. Noah lived in a world where everything imaginable was wicked, just like today. In fact, the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. It lines it right up with us. And I told them, Noah, what an example of faith. Never be afraid to walk, to work for God when nobody else will. And that's, that's, that's an incredible thing. And then we looked, at, uh, we looked at Abraham. And Abraham was called out to go a place where nobody had ever went before. And it took faith. And I told him, it, real faith is not just giving God the very best you have. It's just not walking with God when nobody is. And it's not just working for God when nobody else will, but it's also wandering for God, going wherever God wants you to go. That's faith. And boy, if there's ever a day and age that these four things fit into our world today because God's people don't want to give God the very best. They want to give Him what's left over. They don't want to walk with God. They're afraid to. They're certainly not going to work for God if they're not going to walk for God. And they're certainly not going to wander if you're not going to work and you're not going to walk. And one of the key verses 
in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, and we looked at our next guy in that, in that chapter, and that's Moses. And Moses was called the friend of God in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. In fact, the Bible says that Moses spoke to God face to face like a man speaking to his friend. That had to be the goal for everybody that's saved under the sound of my voice today in your relationship with God. And you know how he got there? Verse 27 of chapter 11, it says, He endured uh, seeing him who is invisible. What a verse for us today. The ability to see God in life, in the issues of life, when others can't see him. The ability to see, take our pandemic and everything we're going through politically and everything in America, in the world. The ability to see in the middle of this terrible, terrible, quote unquote time, the hand of God is still working. And God still has a program. As far as I know, he did not contact the virus yet. He's still in the middle and he wants to use everybody who is willing to give the best, everybody who is willing to to walk with him, everybody is willing to work for him, and everybody is willing to wander for him to put you and use you. And the way that we do that is we endure by seeing him who is invisible, by coming to the place in your life and my life where we see things that God, God is doing that nobody else can see. What a great verse for us today. It also talked about Abraham. And I, I remembered this in Romans chapter 4, verse 17. It talks about another man found in Hebrews chapter 11, the man Abraham. And what an example of his life uh, is to our life. Because in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, he too is called a friend of God. And I don't know if you know this or not, but there's only two men in the Bible who are called God's friend. Now, I'm, no, I'm telling you, I'm sure there were many, many other people that were his friend. But there's a reason why God does and picks people out and says that. And is, is, uh, is, uh, Moses is a great example, so is Abraham. Because here again, I, I don't know of anybody else than these two guys, Moses and Abraham, that if you just, all you had was their lives, you could figure out a lot of things that you needed to do. Because I don't know of anybody else in the Bible who really, on a full-scale blitz, shows us what our life really is other than Abraham. You realize that he starts out in Genesis chapter 12 and he can't trust God for anything. And he winds up in chapter 22 trusting God for everything. And he earns the coveted title of being God's friend. Abraham, my friend. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8. And the great verse in his life, like Moses is found over there in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, and it says this about Abraham. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him who he believed, that's God, <laughs> even God, <laughs> even him of who he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. What an incredible principle for all of us. God's ability in your life and my life to call things that are not as though they were. When you take Abraham and, and, and Sarah, Abraham, when he had Isaac, who was the promised seed, he was 99 years old. Sarah was 90. 
And I guarantee you, I mean, you've you got to remember how the, I've heard their friends were shocked when she came back from the doctor at 90 years of age and said, I'm going to have a baby. Because you see, the whole, this is it. This is what I'm trying to get to you. The whole world saw a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman who was ready for John Knox Village. But God saw the nation of Israel. It says that he quickeneth the dead. What does that mean? It means that their bodies were dead to have children. But God saw the nation of Israel. You see, and I I wish I could get this to you. And I honestly don't know why this is so hard for many of God's people. Maybe you just don't want it. I don't know. But that's the whole key of getting to the place what God sees in you that you can't see in yourself. People come into this church and they have some they have a history of problems, they have some issues. Who doesn't? We all have baggage that we, you know, we carry around in life. We've all made bad choices. Uh, it, it, that's okay. But many times people will come in and they'll they they're beat up pretty bad, you know? The world didn't do them any favors or they made some bad choices and now they're struggling with some things. And so because of that, they allow that to to overwhelm them. Even when they come to church and hear a stupendous message like this one today, (laughs) they just can't get past their past. And I'm going to tell you something. If you're never willing to let God move you through your past, you'll never have much of a future. And you've got to forget those things that are behind. Because what you've got to do when you show up here and hear a message like this and hear these verses, you've got to realize that God sees something in you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here today. You certainly don't think it's an accident that you ran into so-and-so and so-and-so invited you to church or you saw us here or found out where we were. You, don't think, you certainly don't think that's just an accident, do you? God got you here like he's got everybody else here because God saw something in you. The problem is God's people can't see it themselves. But I can. The job of every pastor that's worth his salt, the job of every pastor who has people. Now, I know most pastors want to be on a throne someplace where you're, you, you can't approach them. And if you've got a problem you want to see him, you get some third stringer out there that, that that's what he does because the pastor is so valuable that he don't have time. You know, and you've got to go through a, a secretary uh, to get the pastor. He won't give you his cell phone. Oh, God forbid you'd have your pastor's cell phone. You can't call him direct. You've got to go through Martin Borman uh, to get to Hitler. And it, that's the way it worked. And it's a thing where, you know what, that's the way it shouldn't work. Because the job of a pastor is to know the state of his flocks. The job of a pastor is to be one with you, not separated from you. Because there's no way a pastor can see in you what God sees from a distance. I watch all of you. I watch you come in. I watch you. And I I love you. I love what I see and, and so many of you. Because I see people who really want to do what's right. And, you know, and many times you're beating yourself up because of something that happened in the past, bad marriage or this or that or whatever the case. And that, 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 that should never stop you. Not here anyhow. 
Your future, if you're here this morning, your future is as bright as God's promises. And I see that in you. I think one of the things that is the hardest thing for me in ministry is to see a young man or a young lady who I know has got great potential. Is to see somebody who I think can really do something for the Lord and then watch them throw it away. That's hard for me to look at because I always try to see the best in people. There's always people that all they'll do is see the bad in people. I've never focused on the bad. You know why? Because I know how bad I am. I'd rather focus on your good. That way I can feel better about myself. It's, It's a selfish thing. But I'm telling you, the job of a pastor is to look at his people and to see in them what they may not be able to see for themselves and then have a process, a program. Bring other people in that have come through that process to help them realize everything that God wants them to be and help you in time. Through the ministry of this church, you in time will see all that he has for you, all those things that, uh, are, that, that you can't see right now, but God sees in you. And it's, the pro- it's that old process that we talked about it over the last couple of weeks of Colossians chapter 2, verse 7. You come into church, you're getting involved and in allowing this church to get you rooted in the Word of God. And then once we begin to get you rooted, then we'll build you up. And once you get rooted and built up, then you get established. And it's, it's, it's just a simple three-point process. Our ability to see the miracles of God in our lives and know that the first miracle God did for all of us was the miracle of the new birth. But why do so many of God's people stop with those miracles there? You want to be able to recognize those, see what God does for you, see and understand that he's got something that he wants you to do. But I'm telling you right now, you can't do it your way. Every problem we all have in our lives that wasn't, didn't turn out good is simply something that we did our way. As I would think we'd learn that after a while. And then the things of this world, the government struggles that is only going to get worse. The war and the, and the fear of war, the unrest, civil unrest across this country, the politics, and add to that the pandemic that just keeps reinventing itself in another strain. They, they, they never really enter into it. When I look at those things and the things around me, and you know where I'm at I, with that thing, I, I respect it and I understand it. And, you know, Romans chapter 13 for me, obey your government. I get all of that and I'm all on board with that. But I want you to know, to me, all of that stuff is just different levels of opportunity. Open doors to get people come in. And many times, as I just said earlier, you know, they come in different ways now. We, we, we can't be what we have. We can't have a Super Bowl party today like we did last year. We can't do church like we did. We won't have volleyball. We won't have softball. But that doesn't mean the end of the world is coming, and that doesn't mean we throw up our hands and quit, and that doesn't mean we hide under the bed with our tail between our legs. We realize that we are in a time of opportunity. And in time, as I said last week, you'll learn to thank God, give thanks in all things. 
Because you'll realize what the will of God really is in your life. Because you have come to the point where you will, as I said in Hebrews chapter 13, you'll have embraced, you'll see those promises, you'll embrace those promises. Even though they're afar off, you embrace them. And then by embracing them, you're persuaded of them and you realize that God is going to use you. Every one of you, to me personally, and I'm nothing compared to God, but to God in, eternally, but to me here in, a, in this life, you're invaluable. You have everything. If you're saved, you have everything to be everything God wants you to be. And it simply comes down to your relationship with Him, your friendship with Him, that you trust Him. You have a better relationship with Him than you do the world and the world system. Because the Bible says what? Perfect love, what? Casteth out fear. Greater is he that's in you that's in the world. And it simply comes down for all of us in this church. For us to get where we want to go is to see what nobody else sees. Everybody else just sees the pandemic and afraid of this and afraid of that. And I don't want to do this. And I can't get that. And I might get this. and that. That's, that's the way the world is looking at it. We as God's people, based on Moses and Abraham, we need to see it and see what nobody else sees. We need to realize that we live in the natural, but all God has for us the supernatural. I just don't see the pandemic. I see the opportunities it presents. That doesn't mean we're careless and don't follow the rules and do what we have to do. Certainly we do. But we endure as seeing him who is invisible. And then all God does for you, the miracles in your life, in your family, giving thanks for all things in life, whether it's good or bad. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them that love God or are called according to his purpose. So we live in tremendous times. And today I want to show you another great example of this. And we're going to move on into chapter 2 of John, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. And yet again, some biblical truth for our growth, our process of being rooted, built up, and established, which is my goal for all of you. So let's read the text here, John chapter 2. And uh, then we'll kind of dissect it a little bit and and then split it up, and we'll, we'll learn some things. Here's what he says. And, and, and verse 13, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temples those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen uh, and poured out the changers uh, money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, there's a couple of things here, but let's ask the Lord's blessing as we get into this, and then we'll, we'll go on from there. Now, Father, help us today. These are good people here today. Uh, Lord, they're here today in this very cold day. 
Lord, with the snow on the ground. Uh, they made the effort to be here today because they want to learn, because this church is important to them, because they know that they're in the process of being rooted and being built up and being established. So help us today. Help me to be clear as I try to lay all this out and give them some direction. And Lord, we love you and we thank you for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, sake, we ask it. Amen. Now, there's a couple of things here you want to get down in your Bible. And as we come through John, we might as well break it down chapter by chapter and you can get this book under your belt. The first thing I want you to see, it says uh, in verse 1 that the Passover was at hand. Now, you'll remember I told you when we started the book of John that the whole book of John is built around four Passovers. You'll find one in John 2.23, where we're at, uh, one in 2.23, one in uh, where we're at now, and then one in uh, 2.23, one in John 5.1, one in John 6.4, and then one in John 13.1. And uh, this is built around four Passovers where Christ becomes the Passover lamb on the fourth one. And this forms for us an excellent tracking system. I love when the Bible gives me a natural process to track things. One, I don't have to come up with it on my own. Two, it's always much better than I, what I would come up with on my own, and I just love it. And we have, through the book of John, a natural tracking system built around the four Passovers with Christ himself becoming the Passover lamb at the last one. Now, you remember the book of John was written, first of all, and I told you this, in John chapter 20, verse 31, we know that the theme of the gospel of John is to get men saved. We know that. And that's why Christ is portrayed as the Son of God. And you have a lot of great things in there that we hitchhike off of when we try to win somebody to Christ. So the first thing I want you to see is the fact that this book is built around four Passovers, and we'll deal with these as we come through, and I'll show you as we move through the book. The second thing is our study is found in verses 14 and 16. And Jesus goes down to the temple, and he sees, and this is very important now that you get this. When he goes down to the temple, he sees the real issue with God's people. You know, we as Christians in churches today, we we have a lot of fluff. We have a lot of smoking mirrors. We have a lot of things. A lot of churches have a lot of things that cover up what's really going on because people want to be entertained today more than they want to be preached to. And so for a pastor who is part of the world Laodicean system, it's easy to build a big church today when you make it into a Super Bowl halftime party because everybody likes that. And you're going to see that as he goes into this temple, he tells us firsthand, not getting it through somebody else, we see it by him going into that church temple himself. What problem is with God's people? A total and complete breakdown of what God intended Israel's worship and relationship with God to be. Complete collapse. And he gets angry with what he sees. And the Bible tells us that he makes a scourge, that's a little whip. And he drives them out of the house of God, and it's called that in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, the temple, the house of God. He drives them out, and Jesus himself defines what he's seeing. 
he calls these guys making the house of God in John chapter 2, verse 16, a, a house of merchandise. And then he says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, he calls it a den of thieves. Now, here, here's the issue. A long time ago, before Jesus ever showed up, the priesthood had long been corrupted. The nation of Israel went into their 400 years captivity because of their throwing God out of everything that he did. And the priesthood now has been corrupted as the whole religious system of the nation of Israel. The, the leaders, the religious leaders have aligned themselves with Rome, the world system. They got a nice little thing going for them there. And they have basically turned the house of God into a money-making false system that pretends from the outside. And this is why in Matthew chapter 23, when you come down through that great chapter, you have eight woes that Jesus says about the religious constituency of the nation of Israel, which we're dealing with right here. And one of the things that he says that on the outside you look like a whited sepulcher, you're clean, you look beautiful, but on the inside you're full of dead man bones. And that's Israel's condition here. That's the temple. That's the house of God. They have turned the house of God into a money-making false system that pretends to be God's work. If you would look at it from the outside, everybody's dressed right, everybody's doing the right things and saying the right things. But as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 tells us, they had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. And this phony religious system, it worked fine. Business as usual, every Sabbath, every day in the marketplace, for years and years and years, it worked just fine and everybody was okay with it until the day Jesus went to church. When he showed up, truth came that Sabbath day. And he loses his temper, but not only does he lose his temper, but he unleashed his temper on it. Now, I got to stop here and tell you this. If you've got any other Bible other than the King James Bible, over in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, your King James Bible says, he that is angry without a cause is guilty of, the, guilty of judgment or whatever it is. And in all your new Bibles, in Matthew 5, 22, it says, he that is guilty takes out without a cause. And so all the liberal scholars make Jesus Christ a guilty sinner because they take out without a cause, and he got angry here, so they use that as the fact that, that he broke the law. See how it works? No, it says, he that is angry without a cause, and he had a cause. And not only did he lose his temper, but he unleashed it on them. They are selling the animals for sacrifice, which is the animals need to be used for sacrifice according to Leviticus chapter 1 through chapter 10. But they're selling them inside the temple at a great profit and the whole system has become all about money. Anybody see any similarities here? 
The whole religious system now had degenerated to the fact of, of the leaders making as much money off the people as they could and actually giving them nothing spiritually back. Sound familiar? So he makes himself a whip. Bible calls it a scourge. And he runs them out and overturns the table. You know, that must have been an event to be there to see. Everybody in all these pictures of Jesus that the Catholic Church puts out and most of the neo-evangelical idiots, they always show Jesus like some little wimp. You know, he got little arms about the size of toothpicks, you know, and he's lowly Jesus. Hey, it took a man to go in there and do this. This is Jesus' version of Buford Pusser walking tall. He took his club in there and kicked over the tables. Now, we just so you know that everything comes from the Bible, we get the phrase, we use it all the time, he turned the tables on me. Comes out of here, see? That's what he did, turned the tables on him. Oh, that must have been some time. And i got to be honest with you, I've always enjoyed this story because I, I understand the repetitive of history. Uh, this, is a, this, is a, this is the spiritual condition of God's people. Listen to me now. This is the spiritual condition of God's people at the first coming of Christ in the house of God, in their temple, their body. And once you understand that history always repeats itself and what you find at the first coming of Christ, you will also find that the second coming of Christ you also will know that this is the spiritual condition of God's people today right before the second coming in the church, the house of God, and in their temples, their bodies. I've often wondered, late at night, walking the dog, when I can't sleep at night, I've often wondered, What would happen if Jesus Christ went to most churches this morning on Sunday morning? Because this is exactly what happened to God's people back then. It's happened today. They lost their, they lost their perspective. They lost their position. And they certainly lost their, their purpose. And Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 clearly tells us that in the Laodicean church, Jesus Christ is outside the church knocking on the door trying to get back in. And very frankly, the Christ of the Bible, if you just stop and think about it, if what we're saying is true and what the Bible's saying is true, if, if Jesus showed up at the 95, 99, I don't care, most churches today, he would not be welcomed. He'd be a troublemaker, just like he was here. The system was fixed. The system was flowing. Money was coming in. Everybody was making a profit. Everybody was having a great time, completely forsaking everything under the Old Testament law. In fact, they have changed the law. You'll see that as we get a little farther on in the New Testament. And he, he would be a troublemaker with the pastors, the theologians, and the Bible teachers today, just as he was to the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priest and the religious leaders of his day. My buddy Wes, who passed away last week, Wes was a great guy. This was his church. 
And uh, I met Wes years and years ago when I went down to Tyler, Texas to preach David Bruner's church down there and met Wes. And, and uh, Wes, uh, you know, uh, he'd been following the website. And I remember Wes told me that he had no church down there that he could go to. And he says, and I tried them all. And he says, every time somebody would say something, and I'd raise my hand to ask them where they got that, or was that true, or why they did this and do that, they got mad at me. And a couple of them asked me not to come back. And all he asked was the things that Jesus would ask. You think Jesus would sit through the church service of most churches today and listen to it and not raise his hand? Well, that would be on the nice side. He may just go out in the apple orchard and cut a whip off and come back in and overturn your tables. You see, if he went to the neo-evangelical churches today, he, he, he would raise his hand and he'd say, why aren't we teaching doctrine? Doesn't the Bible say that the first thing is doctrine? And they'd say, you need to leave. If he went to most Baptist churches today, he'd, once he got, got through the song service and the music service, and he heard the preaching, he'd raise his hand and he'd say, why are you preaching out of that Bible? That's not my Bible. Didn't you read John 1, 1? They'd ask him to leave. If he went to the average charismatic church and, he, he, and they would go jibber-jabbering in tongues and have their healing things, he'd raise his hand and he'd say, if you're supposed to be following me, why are you speaking in tongues? I'm Jesus. I never spoke in tongues. He'd be asked to leave. And as I said, everything went fine. I mean, everything went fine for years, for months. Until truth showed up. You know what I've learned in the ministry, what will make enemies with some of God's people? Certainly with the world, but forget the world. We don't understand them. But you know what really makes at odds with God's people? You'll have a situation go on, go on, and go on, or a situation happen that you have to deal with, and the, everything is fine until you bring truth into it. Once the Bible comes in, you're going to find out what side people are on. <coughs> they hated him and they finally killed him. And they would do the same thing today. So, he's not coming as the Son of Man, the Jesus, the carpenter's son, the lowly man from Galilee. He's coming to kick over the tables of the whole world system. And today, if he did come to most churches, he'd overturn some tables. I don't know if you've ever seen this. <coughs> Did you ever, you know what God's controversy, I mean, the Bible defines it all for us. In Hebrews, Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, God, he tells us what the controversy is. He says, he says, hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. That's the Jews. This is all the way back in Hosea, long before Christ ever showed up. And he says three things. One, because there is no truth. They got rid of truth. Two, there was no mercy. Three, no knowledge of God in the land. Now that's Israel's condition at the first coming of Christ. And I'll just say it again. That's the church's position and condition at the second coming of Christ. There's no truth. And once truth is gone, then mercy's gone. 
Once mercy's gone, then the knowledge of God goes. You, you listening to me out there, you go to, go, do your favor. Do me a favor. No, do yourself a favor. I don't need your favor. Go back to church next Sunday, this Wednesday, wherever you go, and pull your pastor aside. Try to get him before he runs out the side door. And just ask him, Pastor, what is the number one goal of Christianity today? Most likely, 99.0% of the time, he will say, winning the lost. <laughs> Wrong answer. The number one job of the church today is not winning the lost. The number one job of the church today is to preach truth. And if you looked over there in the controversy he had in the three things, what was the first thing that he had a controversy over? No truth. Mercy was second. That's showing people how to be saved. Preaching the truth is always the number one goal in Christianity, as it was with the nation of Israel. Now, the third thing I want you to see here When he goes in and he upsets the tables and he throws everybody out, when he purges the house of God, and let me just say to you, and we can begin to get into the practical side of this, don't ever kid yourself for a moment that God does not purge churches today. He says in verse 16, Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, to the Bible student who pays attention with what he reads and compares Scripture with Scripture, you should see something interesting here. Because he does a purging of the house of God two times in his three-and-a-half-year ministry. He does it here in John chapter 2, and he does it three-and-a-half years later in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13. John chapter 2 will be the start of his ministry, and Matthew chapter 21 will be the end of his ministry. I had a guy, heard a guy preach one time in a Bible conference that I was preaching at, and he preached this message, and, you know, I thought about it at the time. You know, that was some pretty good insight. He said, he, t- he was preaching to pastors. It was a pastor's conference, and he used this passage, and he said, you know what? Jesus purges churches. And if this is a model of us for something, of Jesus going down and purging out this Old Testament temple, picture of our church, he said, maybe it just ought to be that every three and a half years, every church needs a good purging. And uh, I thought about it at that particular point in time, and I thought to myself, well, and then he said this. He says, you know what? You pastors, every time you preach, now I know you preach nice stuff and soft stuff and all that, but I'm telling you, any pastor worth his salt, when he gets into his message, he's going to kick over some tables. Now, table in the Bible is a picture of fellowship, and some of God's people today are fellowshipping at the wrong table. So a pastor, when he preaches, based on this guy, he preached the fact that when a pastor gets in a pulpit, he should kick over some tables. Now, despite that, if you notice this, and here it comes, this is what the Bible's do not again. In John chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry, he says, you have made my father's house a house of merchandise. At the end of the three and a half years, in Matthew 21, same scenario, he says, you have made 
my house. It went from my father's house three and a half years later, now it's his house. Obviously, one of the great confirmings of the deity of Christ that he's God, but there's something else here. During this three and a half years, he's come to the nation of Israel to reveal himself as the Son of God. And through everything that he's done, he's followed the exact same process that I try to put you through. He got rooted. And then he got built up. And by the time he comes at the end of his ministry before the crucifixion, when he comes in there, he says, my house, you know why? Because now he's established himself as the Son of God. Now watch this. In John chapter 2, you'll find another great lesson that ties into the whole work that Christ is doing and why he says, my father's house, and then he says, my house. He's moving through that three and a half years going to a point. He's established himself as the Son of God to Israel. Then he says this phrase and statement in John chapter 2, verse 4, when he says to his mother, what have I to do with thee? Here it comes. Mine hour is not yet come. That my father's house and my house and everything that he's doing in that three and a half years is based on an hour in his life that's coming. Mine hour has not yet come. Five times he says that in the Gospels. He says it in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. He says it in John chapter 7, verse 30. He says it in John chapter 8, verse 28. He says it in Luke chapter 22, verse 53. And here we are, John chapter 2, verse 4. Now this will be a reference this hour to him finishing the work that he started when he came at the first coming of Christ. The work that God sent him to do. Hence... In Luke chapter 2, verse 49, he says, when they, when they lost him for a couple of days and they found him, and he says, where are you at? He says, I was about my father's business. He said in John chapter 5, verse 17, John chapter 10, verse 37, and John chapter 6, verse 38, that he came to do the work of the father. And that work that he did is pointed and focused to the final hour. And all through those Gospels, he says, mine hour's not yet come, mine hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come, but it finally came. And that hour that he finished the work will be his work on the cross, the finished work of Christ. That's why when he's being crucified in John chapter 19, verse 38, what did he say? It is finished. What was finished? The work. You see, Christ came to die. Most people don't see this. When he was born in the manger, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. Those are grave clothes. Did you ever notice how that in Mark chapter 15, you have an order of the crucifixion and how particular he is of the hours? He says in Mark 15, verse 1, that the crucifixion starts in the morning. That'll be 6 o'clock in the morning. In verse 25, he says, then it moved to the third hour. In verses 33 and 34, he moved to the sixth and the ninth hour. 
And then when he dies on the cross, it's the even, the twelfth hour. He, he, he does everything he does. He actually manages all of the events in his earthly ministry up against that hour. And when you find him in his earthly ministry, everything he does, he's looking toward the hour that he's telling people hasn't come yet. And him establishing himself as the Son of God, very God himself. So he says in John 2, my father's house, and then three and a half years later, once he's been established and he's purged the church twice now, my house. Because he's coming to that hour. Okay. Time for my apologies. I'm sorry to have to do this. But here it comes again. We should just stop right now and nobody's toes are stepped on. Everybody can go watch your game this afternoon without herbal indigestion. But no, not me. Somebody says, yeah, yeah, Bob, you ought to be more like Jesus. I, you're right, I am, I should, so I'm going to be more like Jesus. Allow me to kick over some tables. Here's the spiritual application. If you'd like me to pray again so you can sneak out, I would be glad to do that. This would be a good time to have lack of bladder control and have to go to the restroom. This would be a great time to pretend like you get a phone call that your, your dog just threw up on the carpet and you've got to get home. Nobody will ask how your dog called on the cell phone to tell you that. It's between you and the dog. <laughs> Have you ever noticed? Now, I, I know I'm weird. I, I know I am. I look at things in the Bible, and, I, and sometimes they just overwhelm me. I was putting this stuff together here last week, and sometimes I just have to, God will show me something. I have to sit down and take a break. It just, it just overwhelms me. Did you ever notice? When I laid out the different ways you determine the times and the seasons a couple of weeks back, in Matthew chapter 20, I showed you that one of them was an hour system. Remember that? Matthew chapter 20, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into the vineyard. And when he agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And when they went their way, again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out, and found others standing idle, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. And he saith unto them, Go ye into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right ye shall receive. And when even was come, so we started from six o'clock in the morning to six o'clock, twelve hours. When the even was come, the Lord of the vineyards said unto his steward, Holy Spirit of God, call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning the last unto the first. Now this story will cover our third day system. And this is a 12-hour day that spans 33 A.D. because it's a picture of the church age. So it starts in 33 A.D. in the morning, and then goes all the way up to the 12th hour, the Lord coming back, which would be 6 o'clock in the even. 
Now, let's see the church age here and, and, and how you and I fit into this. Remember, his, he, his whole ministry, he worked toward an hour. I want you to keep that in your mind. And that hour was to finish the work that God had given him to do. Keep that in your mind. Now, the man who was a householder here, just so we can put this in your Bible, that will be God the Father. Uh, he's the householder of the house of God. In this case, uh, in our study in John 2, the nation of Israel. The steward here in verse 8, as I've already told you, will be the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, the workers going into the vineyard to labor for these 12-hour day will be you and me. Now, let's get a good biblical formula. We know that this is the third day. We know that Christ comes back in the third day. So we got 2,000 years here. We got the, uh, you know, the first day, the second day, and then Christ comes back the third day. So the church age is, is those first two days, which is 2,000 years. Okay. We know that we're dealing with approximately 2,000 years in the church age, and we know we got a 12-hour day. Now, I was no, no math genius, but I still have my calculator. When I divide 12-hour day in the year 2,000 years, you know what I get? I get 166, 167 years for every hour in this story. That's pretty simple. So if the morning is 33 A.D., which obviously it is from our study, then in verse 3 we move up to the third hour. Using our formula of 166, 167 years per hour, that would bring us up to 500 A.D., the beginning of the Dark Ages. In verse 5, it says, in 5 it says the sixth hour. That would bring us, using our formula, up to 1,000 A.D., and then also in verse 5, the ninth hour, that would bring us up to approximately 1500 A.D., start of the Reformation. And all of this time, he's sending labors into this vineyard through a 12-hour day. And then he says in verse 6, the 11th hour workers go in. That would put us around, around 1840, 1845 someplace where the last shift of workers go in. And then in verse 8, the even comes, and it's all over. The Lord comes back. Now, have you ever noticed that the hours here are the exact same hours that were listed in the crucifixion when Christ finished his work? That story back there that I read you in Mark 15 started in the morning, then it went to the third hour, then it went to the sixth and the ninth hour, and then it went to even. His work was the same as what my work should be. Except here he put in the 11th hour. Because the 11th hour shows us, you and me, who understand the Bible and the Laodicean church period, understands where the urgency for us is. Now, here's what I want you to see. When Christ came, he came to do the work of his Father. And that work was based on the hour that he did it. Mine hour has not yet come. And that hour was to finish the work he had undertaken and he understood completely that that hour concept was into work of his ministry. Now you and I are up against the same hour system. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, He hath begun a good work in you and will perform it in the day of Jesus Christ. The church age is 2,000 years, even in the morning, uh, the morning to even, six to six, 12 hours, and each of us will have 
our own hour to do the work that God has called us to do. Just as Christ focused everything he had on the hour to finish the work, you and I, 11th hour Christians, should be focused on everything we have on the hour God has given us to do his work. We went in, each of us, we went in in the last shift that started around 1840. We now are in 2021, and in the final minutes of our hour, as far as God is concerned. Actually, we're overdue if you know Daniel chapter 2. I sure hope we get paid time and a half for that overtime. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I understand that you get so caught up and you lose your perspective, you lose everything that God has for you, but I want to tell you on the authority of the Word of God and the hour system, we are at the most crucial time of our work in our lives, our families, and our churches. Now, this is why I always say, that every child of God down through history with the Bible that you have, the right Bible, he should have been able to know exactly where he was in relationship to the second coming of Christ and his hour in relation to that so he could finish the work that God called him because Christ had an hour he was up against. Every Christian in church history had his hour he's up against. And you and I have our hour we're up against. The 11th one. Because our our hour has come and we need to finish the work God started with us, in us, just like Christ did. I talked to a businessman not long ago and he was looking for some good help. And uh, I told him, I said, uh, he asked me, he said, you know, he said, you know, it is really hard to find help today. Nobody wants to work today. He says, nobody's dependable. Nobody will show up. You know, uh, I've hired guys and, uh, you know, they work one day and they never came back because they think the work's too hard. And he says, I pay people good. But he says, nobody wants to work today. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's so true of God's people today too. Nobody wants to work their hour shift today. We're all on vacation. Well, we, we're, we're using our, our saved up days off. And God's people today are just like the guy this guy was dealing with. They're not dependable. They won't show up for work. They're lazy. You go all across this city, go down to the plaza or go anywhere. They're moving into Raytown and moving into, you know, uh, you, you see, you see uh, men and women on the street corners. And they all got signs. Help, please. Need food. Need money. I actually saw one about a month and a half ago. He said, need new funny, but we'll take drugs. I wanted to give that guy something. He was the most honest one I met. I didn't have any drugs. <laughs> Holding up a sign, I'm destitute, out of work, need help. Oh, yeah, don't forget. And God bless. I've sat there to light and watch him say, need help, out of work, need money, and then talking to somebody on their cell phone. Really? Or lighting up a cigarette. Really? You know what a pack of cigarettes cost now? When I was growing up, cigarettes was 25 cents a pack. What are they now? Four or five dollars a pack? I don't, I'm looking now, who knows, because I'm going to nail you. Coming over to your table. Just a minute. What? Seven, eight dollars a pack? Yep. 
God told me one time that he, he actually felt sorry for these people. Now, if you don't figure it out that it isn't a scam, you can actually watch them change shifts. God told me one time he offered 50 of them, a bunch of them, a job, you know, and give them work, and none of them would take it. None of them wanted to work. Because it was easier to sit on a street corner and, and they make out better just taking handouts from people than having to go to work and work a nine to five. And I remember when he told me that, I thought to myself, you know what? I got, I, all my life I've seen God's people that way. They won't work either, and they'll come to church every Sunday just to get the handout. Better get your Bible off that one. I'm going to kick that one over here in just a second. (laughs) And to me, this church, myself, has been will and will continue to be built and to do the work in the hour that God has given us. We we want to be the church of the open door, not the church of the closed door. I want people that are rooted. I want people that are built up. I want people that are grounded and established. And I'm telling you, when a pastor gets up to preach, we all got the wrong tables in our lives and they need to kick over the table. Some people will stay, some people will leave. But it's about the truth. You know, when I get to the judgment seat of Christ, I have one goal for myself and, you know, I'll have plenty to give an account for and I'm not even looking for anything, but I have one goal for myself, and I might add, it's my goal for you. I can't make your goals for you, but in my mind, to try to help you, and that will be the first thing I say. When I stand before the Lord, and I take that shield, that sword, and I sheathe that sword, and I stand there before him, the first thing out of my mouth, I want it to be, it is finished. I want the first thing out of my mouth to be the last thing that came out of Christ's mouth, that he finished the work, and I don't care what shape I get there, I just want to finish my hour. The work God called me to in my hour. Now, boy, if you don't understand that in Christianity today, we are 11th hour Christians, and we are at the end, right before. I mean, literally, the last grains of sand are falling through God's hour class. 11th hour Christianity. You know, I've told you this before. In Chicago, Illinois, we have what we call the doomsday clock. It was put out and established and maintained by the atomic scientist of the University of Chicago. Not a Christian thing. It's an unsaved worldly thing. And they have in 1947, once the the nuclear age came into being. They started what was called a doomsday clock at the beginning of the Cold War that depicts that the end of the world will happen at 12 o'clock. It's only got one hand on it and it moves around and they, they look at the world events and everybody knows that something disastrous is coming. The unsaved world in the Chicago, uh, University of Chicago, they got a clock. They all add to it and believe that that at 12 o'clock, it's going to be over. And as we speak, the 11th hour concept has all been through the Bible. Matthew 20, in the Old Testament, 
the nation of Israel through history. In Matthew chapter 20, you have a 12-hour day. In Exodus chapter 12, the death angel came through at midnight. In Matthew chapter 25, there's ten virgins, five are wise and five were foolish. And the five that are wise, the Lord comes at midnight. You cannot get around it, folks. You, all you have to do is look at the world around you. Jesus said, my hour is not yet come. His hour was to finish the work. And we in the church age are up against a 12-hour day. And we are the last shift of the 11th hour before that clock hits 12. And right now in Chicago, on that doomsday clock, it's two minutes to 12. Now, we, we know all too well the events that God used to lead up to Israel becoming a nation in 1948. And you remember now the last workers go in around 1840 and we are in the last, that's the 11th hour, the 12th hour he's coming back and we are in the final seconds of that thing. So we would go back and we would look in the 1890s, as I've taught you many, many times, the beginning of the Zionist movement, the re-establishing of, of, of a mindset toward the nation of Israel to help them. Then World War I came along, and we've talked about how that the five great powers of Europe were all defeated. One of them, and were broken up, one of them uh, was the Ottoman Turks. And all this deals with the with all this deals with the eleventh hour because it was at the uh, in nineteen seventeen where where the Turks got kicked out and and General Allenby who was a British general went in and kicked the Turks out of Jerusalem and now England England has control of Jerusalem and I. <laughs> And Lord Allenby entered Jerusalem. And then that led to what was going to be the Belfort Declaration. And the Belfort Declaration was put out by Lord Belfort that was going to give the land back to the Jew, which this is where the 11th hour really kicked in and started to move to the last minutes. Because Lord Allenby, General Allenby, entered Jerusalem 11 months to the day of the signing of the Belfort Declaration. He entered entered December 11th. 1917. Eleven months later, the Belfort Declaration was signed that began the end of the times of the Gentiles and led to Israel becoming a nation in 1948. Here it comes. It was signed on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, November 11th, 1918. It gets better. Over in Isaiah chapter 31, verse 5, it says, As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it. And passing over, he will preserve it. God, the eagle, over Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 32. When Lord Allaby went in, British planes flew over. A whole squadron flew over Jerusalem and terrified the Ottoman Turks so greatly that they left the city and bolted out of that city 
ahead of the troops, and there was no fight, there was no real battle. British planes flew over Jerusalem and scared the Arabs and scattered them. And that RAF squadron was the 14th Aero Squadron of the ROF, and on the side of every plane was their motto, I spread my wings and keep my promises. <laughs> and you think, oh, that's an accident. That's where the 11th final hour really kicked in. And in 1948, when Israel declares herself to be a nation, she did it on May 15, 1948, at midnight of the 14th at the end of the 11th hour. And just as Christ had his hour and just as Israel had their 11th hour, you and I have the privilege to make our stand in the 11th hour of God's church age. We're the last workers to go in. We're it. We're all, we're all God is counting on to hold that line. And, and, I, and I look around at Christianity and I'm thinking, if God is depending on the church today to hold the line, we're in trouble. And that's why it's so vital that every child of God, every man, every woman, every family understands yeah, I know the Super Bowl's the gaffs afternoon, and I know we all want to win, and I know it's going to be a great time. There ain't nothing wrong with that. But don't lose sight that he began a good work in you, and he will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And we, every one of us, have the privilege in the final seconds of the 11th hour to hold the line and take our stand. And right now, the world's clock from the world looking at the end of the world as we know it and the destruction of it is at two minutes to 12. His work on the cross was his hour. My work because of the cross is my hour. This is not about in history, what time you went to work. This is about in the 11th hour Christianity where we on the job. Do we realize, in spite of all the stupid things that are going on around us, do not get sidetracked by them. Do not get pulled off your perception, your purpose, your position because of that. Realize that just as Christ his whole ministry was up against his hour for the work of God to be finished. He began that good work in you and we're up against our hour. And we have to finish the job. We have to do the work. And when I get there, all I want to say, it is finished. I fought a good fight. It's finished. That's all I want for myself, and that's all I try to do to help you get to that point in your life. Some of you will, some of you won't. Some of you, you won't follow any of this, and like I said, you know what? The, the tables get turned up, and the world turns them up, and God turns them up, and he purges the church. 
Some of God's people will stay and pick up the mantle and do the job. Other ones will head off and the Lord knows where they're at and what they're doing. Doesn't matter. They're not part of the work anyhow. All that matters is who in his 11th hour stands shoulder to shoulder, hold the line, get the job done. Well, we'll hold up there. Enjoy the rest.